Continuous integration and deployment are important tools for modern software development. With continuous integration and deployment, individual engineers can push code without waiting to synchronize with the rest of the team on a big software release. Today on Software Engineering Daily, Florian Motlik from CodeShip joins us to discuss continuous integration, DevOps, and microservices. In full disclosure, CodeShip has been a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, but I would be doing this interview whether or not that was the case, because Flo has a lot to say about software engineering. We get into conversations and case studies of how software teams take continuous deployment from theory into practice. Flo Motlik is the CTO of CodeShip, a continuous integration and deployment service. Florian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Continuous integration and deployment is what CodeShip offers. What do those terms mean? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the process of continuous integration and, and continuous deployment is basically all about making sure that your team can build and release their software as quickly and as productively as possible. So really, continuous integration, running automated tests, making sure that on every change that your development does to any feature branch or any part of the repo, um, your automated tests are run in the fastest and, and most parallelized way possible. And, and then once the team has implemented something, once some developer in your team is ready to, to release something, that even just merging it into the master branch um, releases it and, and gives the latest version of your code to your customers. So code isn't just lying around in your repository, but can actually provide your customers value. And, and in our opinion, that's really important because, I mean, especially for a startup, but basically for any kind of company, you want to be able to get all of your projects, all of your updates as quickly to your customers to learn from them. And so that's what we as a service enable. And, and that's what a lot of customers and a lot of teams have been doing for a long time. Um, but now with everything moving to the cloud, that's one of the last pieces that moved to the cloud um, as well. How does an organization that uses continuous integration and continuous deployment, how does that kind of organization operate compared to one that does not have continuous integration and deployment? Yeah, I think it, it even starts from like a, a project management perspective is where often teams that, that don't really do these kind of continuous integration or continuous um, deployment or delivery um, cycles, they have way longer development time. So you have, instead of doing like a weekly sprint or like really small iterations on your project or like a Kanban thing where you implement something and then immediately release it, you have those like three weeks or one month release cycles or even longer because at the end of each release cycle, you don't have good automation to test everything. So you basically need to go through it manually. You really need to make sure that everything works well and everything gets tested. And so you just need to add this additional cycle time um, to the end of that whole process. And that's just a lot of time spent on it. So you need you move faster, you develop in a completely different way because everything needs to take longer. You need to spend a lot more time on really building the whole feature because it's hard to ship just small stuff um, if mm -hmm. you don't have a good way to release immediately. Like, for example, what a lot of teams do is like you release something small and sometimes it doesn't work, so you immediately release a fix. If your release cycle is a month, there's no way you can just implement the, like an MVP or a really small part of what that feature needs to do. You need to implement it completely, basically, because mm. you don't know when exactly the next cycle is. So the whole way how you approach planning 
and planning and releasing and talking to customers. And I mean, that even imp uh, impacts sales. Like if you want to ship a fix and it takes you three weeks to ship that fix, even though it's a small one, um, that's going to imp uh, impact sales and how they can sell and how can they can talk to customers. And so the whole organization needs to move a lot slower and needs to mm. plan with moving slower. Then if you have a cycle where like the release process and testing is not a hindrance. Um, if it if you know that like I'm changing this thing and it's not breaking anything, so I give it, can give it out to customer and even just test it. So we recently did a um, a webinar with with a, a feature. Um, so basically, for feature toggles, um, a service and or generally feature toggles are a great way to just give the feature to a couple of customers and and try it there and run it and like iterate even faster. And if you have this kind of workflow, um, you really start that you experiment a lot more, you try a lot more things, try to go in this direction or that other direction, instead of going full on into just one direction and maybe going down the wrong way, just iterate, you experiment, and you learn from your customers what is actually the right way to build it and the right thing to build, instead of just basically guessing and then seeing a month later if that's something that customers are actually interested in or not. Now that you've explained why continuous integration and deployment are these desirable characteristics to bake into an organization, what does CodeShip do? How does CodeShip allow for organizations to implement continuous integration and deployment? Basically, instead of maintaining all of the infrastructure on your own, instead of running those test servers on your own, um, that's basically done by us as a service. So you can consider it like instead of running your own Git server, you use GitHub. Instead of you're running your own build infrastructure, you use um, CodeShip. And of course, since we're a dedicated team doing this for many, many different teams, many thousands of customers, um, it's just the service is really stable. We can implement a lot more features, especially features that as any other service out there um, that, that provides it as a cloud service. And we can build things that are really complicated to build that no single team would build on their own unless they're really, really large because it's such a big investment. On the other hand, it really pays off to have that kind of feature, to be able to have the kind of flexibility in the service and, and those kinds of things. So um, it's really all about making sure that your development team can focus on what is best for their customers and working on what is best for their customers instead of building things like test infrastructure or even scaling test infrastructure like Test infrastructure for three people is very different than a test infrastructure for 50 people. Um, and with a service like ours and, and, and generally services out there, um, it's just mm. much easier to just put in the credit card, upgrade to a higher subscription tier if you have more developers, and you're good <laughs> to go, basically. Okay. I want to dive deeper into what a company with continuous deployment in place looks like. And then we'll talk about a little more about CodeShip. So you've talked that software testing is crucial to continuous deployments. Basically, that is an inherent part of the deployment process, software testing. So how should people structure their testing strategy to work with a continuous deployment infrastructure? Yeah, so our approach there is always twofold. Um, first of all, automate everything. Like we, we've sometimes seen teams where they feel that even having some kind of manual QA, even though manual QA is great for feature reviews, it's not really great for testing that that thing actually works unless you just want to see if and click around it. Um, and then what we find is a really good approach and that we use and that we have many customers using is kind of testing from top to bottom, meaning you start testing from the perspective of a customer 
So that can be a Selenium test, any kind of higher level functional testing where you click through the website, you make sure that the buy button works. You make sure that the login works because you're going through that whole flow of, of, of login and, and any other kind of features. And so we've seen teams go from no test suite at all to like covering most of their most important um, workflows in the product in a very short amount of time because you don't have to write thousands of test cases in the beginning. Write 10, write 15, write 20 test cases that cover the most important things. And from there you can build. But that's the kind of approach, a very customer-driven, user-driven approach uh, in your testing to make sure um, that you actually do what's best for the customer and, and test it in, in that way. Mm. When we're talking about continuous deployment and testing, for listeners that are unfamiliar with different kinds of testing, we should take a moment to differentiate between unit tests and integration tests and Maybe if there's some other types of tests that you think are worth enumerating, um, let's discuss these. So could you define at least unit tests and integration tests and perhaps any other uh, ca- categories of testing that you think are important to use? Totally, yeah. So unit testing is um, basically the smallest um, of those or with the smallest focus of those. So typically it's a small piece of code, um, a small unit of code um, that could be a class, a method in a class or anything of that sort where um, you you test the implementation or you test the calling, you give it some kind of parameters and just see if that specific method returns or does exactly what it's supposed to do on a very small level. You typically have many, many, many of those um, in your test test suite um, and each unit test should really only focus on one specific scenario. Whereas like a larger test, like a functional test could test a larger amount of features on, and could, could use a large amount of code underlying it, um, a unit test should really focus on a very, very small thing, like a method mm. um, where you just mm. provide the parameters and, and check the output value. So we have this the unit test on a very, very small level. Um, typically, what, what um, we tell customers and, and how we use it ourselves is unit testing you use kind of functional tests, which is a second approach. Functional test is really all about making sure that it's not just a piece of code that works, but a larger feature um, works in an expected way. So that could be login. For example, you open up the website and um, you go through the login workflow um, through something like Selenium or any other kind of browser testing tool, for example, um, to make sure th- that workflow works. And, and basically that's going through the happy path. So for each feature, you make sure the happy path um, works out fine. And then you add another test that goes through the sad path to make sure that if there's any kind of error, the correct message um, gets shown and it, it, it does the right thing basically for a specific error um, case. Now, the problem with these kind of uh, functional testing and with real testing in terms of the features is that they're slow. Um, running a Selenium test is really slow. Running a unit test that is just a small piece of code itself is really fast. So basically, you want to make sure that for the important features or basically all features, you have kind of a functional test that goes through the happy path and one of the sad paths. But then you have unit tests that on a deeper level validate the other sad paths. For example, you have a form and you have some parameters that need to be um, inserted in a specific way. You might just want to test that one of those parameters, if one of those parameters is not correct, that you can't go further in that form. 
but you don't want to really test every single form entry that it shows an error message in the right way because that would just be a lot of tests and that would be really slow. So you have one of them, have the set path, and then in a unit test, for example, you test the validation. You make sure that specific values can't be inserted um, and, and would be caught by the validation, which also means because you've set it up in, a, in the right way and that they would be shown in the UI. Um, but yeah, you don't want to test everything through the UI. So that's mm-hmm. a typical um, setup between um, functional testing or feature testing or ex- kind of acceptance testings. Those terms are kind of overloaded. It's it's hard to have a very exact definition. That's typically how, how I see them and how, how we use them, them ourselves. Um, then an, another one would be integration tests, which is often kind of used in a similar fashion um, to, to functional testing. But the main idea behind integration tests is that if you have a large amount of infrastructure, think microservices um, that need to work together and before you want to release something, you want to make sure that they integrate well together, that the different interfaces between each service works as expected. So you set up all that kind of infrastructure and then walk through a workflow, a use case in your application that goes through all of those different services to make sure that they properly work together. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it feels really close to what functional tests are. The difference there is that functional tests are really user and customer focused. So you want to make sure that the, use, the feature works for the customer. And integration tests are more technology focused. So does the feature that does all of the different services, all different parts of my infrastructure, do they work together correctly? So that's while they oftentimes they could even be done with the same um, technology. So you might just use a Selenium to, to trigger and to go through a workflow that triggers all these kinds of services. Um, they have a little bit of a different approach. Um, right. So that's a different idea. So, so you've mentioned you've mentioned that the the length of time it takes to run your tests uh, can be uh, inhibitory, and and that will mm-hmm. certainly be one of the uh, driving uh, use cases for CodeShip, and we'll get into that later on. Uh, but speaking a little more about testing in general, there is a school of thought that people talk about called test-driven development, uh, and this this school of thought suggests that we should write our tests before we even begin writing our code. To what degree do you agree that this is a good strategy? So I think I've, I think it's definitely a good strategy and it's a good idea. I think I was much stronger in the past on this than I might be now, where I think if you're in a mindset already and if you're there, the test-driven development and you start writing your tests beforehand uh, and, and you've been there and you've done it before, um, it definitely pays off. I think especially on the more feature side. Like if you write tests and like write a, a, a feature test that clicks on a specific link and then you expect this to be there and this to be there, I think it helps with how you build the page, how you build the feature to have something that already clicks through it and like uses it kind of like a user because it forces you um, to think as a user, how would I click through this? What would the flow be? How would I set this up? So I think that really helps a lot. And I think that's where test-driven development, forcing you to think in think a little bit outside of your development shoes and, and outside of like, how do I implement this? More like, okay, what's the flow that, that I should follow here? Um, mm-hmm. It definitely helps there. Um, but it, there's, I think especially if you do new features, um, what, what I typically do um, in development is if I develop new features, I, I code them to a point where I feel comfortable that I have a good feeling of what the flow will be. Like, so 
generally like if it's a bigger one and and completely unexpected something completely new um, that we haven't implemented in the past or isn't just an iteration of something that we have um, just do some kind of exploratory development just like okay put something there somewhere and just get a feeling of like how this whole thing actually feels like and like what what would work and what doesn't work because if you start implementing the tests at this point where you don't really have a good grasp of of the feature itself um you might implement a test that you don't really need um or mm-hmm. that is completely contrary to what actually should be there um yeah it can help but it might just be a little bit of a waste but i think yeah. getting to that point where you understand like okay i have a good feeling like this is exactly where i want to go with this and then immediately stop and implement a test that's hard and i think that takes some um experience but i think that's really valuable because then you work you work in an exploratory fashion as long as you need it but as uh, you have kind of a process as soon as possible because when you know like this this direction that i'm going with this you start adding a process that you can easily follow and iterate so i think that um, especially on the feature side is typically the workflow um, that I do. Um, if you just iterate on an existing feature, I think implementing the test immediately where you have a pretty good grasp and a pretty good understanding of where you want to take this, um, then implementing the test immediately makes a lot of sense um, because you can't just... It, it sounds like you're process. saying It sounds like you're saying there's maybe less of a reason to do uh, you know, tight TDD practices if you're kind of in a greenfield environment and then maybe as you as you get closer to where you have a better idea of what your product actually does then you can talk in more definitive terms about what you would want to test to do yeah i I agree i think greenfield more but more on the feature side less on the whole project like i think it's important that if you implement a feature even though it's a completely new project you really should start writing tests early on but what i would do is i would write more on the feature side more high level stuff um, early on because the lower level code will change a lot more than typically like your login workflow. Like if you click the login button and then you fill in an email and a password and login, like even if the user interface changes, that's probably going to be there for quite a while. And like these basic kind of workflows and these basic kind of things of MVPs are probably going to be there for a bit. And it's easier to write tests that where you can change the UI, but the, the test still works. So I think that's something that that at least I found to be really helpful. I haven't found unit tests or really lower level testing to be very useful in the very early stages of the project. Project I think they're more helpful once you have a certain understanding of where you take this and what the feature will be like. Um, oftentimes the problem is though is if you don't start writing your unit tests um, early on as well you have this kind of problem that that you don't write them at all because there's so much stuff to do. So I think getting a good balance where, okay, you know this part of the code is is in a good shape and like we also know how we want to build this and then start building your tests there, I think definitely pays off. And, and the same way that you build your tests for your user interface because you want to think as a user and want to think through the flow, the same applies to unit testing where as soon, like writing a test for a piece of code that you call really shows you like, is this comfortable to call? Does this make sense? Is the naming really right? Or is the naming really hard to understand? It's, in my opinion, in my experience, really hard to see like while you're writing the class, if the class is really usable um, and the code is really usable, it's much easier to write a test for it um, because then you think about kind of the, the user experience of, of that specific piece of code. Um, so I think okay. that's in my experience has been really, really helpful. 
Another element of the continuous deployment uh, practice is often this, this importance of small services or microservices. Why does building small services lead to a more efficient continuous deployment pipeline? Yeah, so typically, especially if you want to release often, you want to keep the surface that you touch with every change small. Um, if your application, like if any change, if you have like this huge monolith and every change that you do touches the whole monolith, um, then you have to rerun a lot more tests because you have to make sure that everything in that monolith works. Um, if you, everything is a smaller piece of code um, that can be deployed independently, then that deployment and that process becomes a lot faster because the tests are faster. The code that you need to understand and how it can impact everything in that piece of code is much easier to understand. So that's typically um, why, especially once you want to move to continuous delivery, you want to have those kind of smaller services. One problem with the small services, though, is um, the process of how you um, release them. So there's the two different schools of thought, basically, that 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 I've seen so far is that if you have this kind of microservice-oriented architecture, you deploy each and every service independently so that you can deploy anything, anytime. The disadvantage there is that during the time that you deploy something, you might need to support different ways or different APIs. Maybe you change an API, but you need to support the old way and the new way until all the other services that call that particular service are updated as well to get zero downtime deployment. So that adds right. some kind of complexity to how to each and every service and how I can deploy each and every service. But oftentimes, like the interfaces between most services are typically relatively stable. So um, in, in what, what I've seen so far is like those don't change the implementation and the features that they support. You add a lot of stuff, you maybe subtract a lot of stuff, but the interfaces don't change that much in, from functions and from APIs that are kind of stable and have been stable for a while. So I think there, I generally think that the independent deployment approach is a, a better approach or is, a, I think, more productive. You can just move a lot faster with that specific approach. But there's certainly valid cases where you want to say, I want to uh, deploy my whole infrastructure at once, even though it's different services. I want to deploy it at once. I want to integration test it completely together to have a really good feeling and understanding that I can release this um, together and it works. The downside there, of course, is it's a lot sl slower because you have right. to release everything together. You can't just push like five different services at the same time. You have to run a lot more tests across everything because you test that everything works together really well um, because you only release it um, together. Um, that removes that burden, kind of removes that burden of the zero downtime deployment and how to handle that um, with, with the quick releases. And you don't have to support everything all the time because you push everything um, together. But yeah, but it has a hard time of being slow. Um, and I think being slow is just really, really hard on most companies. Okay, so we've talked here about some separate aspects of a continuous delivery uh, infrastructure, testing, maybe microservices. And there's also this importance of having a deployment pipeline and the different stages in a deployment pipeline. So for listeners who have no idea what this is, can you talk about what a continuous deployment pipeline is and why it's so important? Yeah. So deployment pipeline basically captures all the steps 
that are necessary to deploy a specific piece of code to a specific environment. So um, that could be a, a staging pipeline, for example, to deploy to staging. That could be a production pipeline. But it basically autom- captures everything in an automated fashion so that the deployment happens without, um, typically without any um, developer having to interact um, with that process. Um, you want to automate that as much as possible. Sometimes we see teams that have some manual step in there. But the important part as well is if that manual step is somehow in that, it needs to be very well documented and followed constantly and done constantly. So you, you want to make sure that through your deployment pipeline, through that automation, you don't really have to think about deployment anymore. So that's where we try and, and that's how we try to help our customers is that deployment is something that just happens when you merge from one branch to another and you don't really think about it. Like you merge code and then you just go over and like do some other work and work on the next feature. And at some point, like you just get a notification, this thing was deployed and the deployment worked fine or the deployment didn't happen um, correctly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really, so we call that repository driven infrastructure. So basically as a developer in my day-to-day work, I just think about moving code from one branch to another and everything else just gets triggered and and driven from there. And all my changes that get deployed are driven from there. And, and so then you set up different deployment pipelines for different branches where you want to maybe want to deploy a feature branch to a QA application automatically. You want to deploy your master branch to a staging app. Um, or production app, or you could also, which some people um, want to do is that they don't want to deploy master um, all the time. They have a specific production branch and only that one gets deployed out into production. So you can manually trigger it by moving code around in your repo. But again, the it's not complex because you just move code from one branch to another and then the deployment pipeline and that aut- automation takes over and and deploys it for you. And yeah, that's a really powerful workflow. Right. It, it provides definitely this layer of safety or insulation or a strong definition about where, like, in in what environments is your code working properly. And um, so we've done several shows about DevOps and the DevOps movement. And I think this is kind of iconic of why people are adopting tools like CodeShip. So how would you define DevOps and how does CodeShip fit into that model? Yeah, um, I think generally the idea that and, and how I've understood DevOps so far is making sure that, first of all, the developers have as much control as they need over the environment. And that includes like how and which with which software their application is running. And so, for example, with Docker, I think Docker is a really good way forward there, not necessarily just because how you can run complex infrastructure with Docker, but that Docker provides you this kind of really nice deployment format where you install everything as a developer yourself inside of that container and the operations team and the operations guys can just take that over and run it for you, but they don't really care what's happening inside of it. So on the one side, giving developers more control over their environment, but not just control, but also responsibility. Like now that you control whatever is happening inside of this piece that you're giving me, you also have to make sure that whatever is in there works. And so that's the whole automation part um, on top of that. And then on the other side, now that we have this kind of model where the developers control more and more of, of the pieces that we're running with services like 
AWS, the cloud, and all the services that they're running on top of, but also CodeShip and, and GitHub and all the automation that they allow. DevOps really allows the development team to treat their infrastructure like software, to automate their infrastructure like software, and not have to think about long-running instances, long-running hardware, or anything like that anymore. It's just kind of classes and instances again, only that in this case, if I start an instance from a class, it's just a server somewhere. And I think that model of bringing it down to the level of software and interacting with it on a kind of a software level, and even though, of course, there's a lot more complexity underneath and how you manage the operating system, but I think a lot of that is getting more and more hidden from the developers um, because of services, because of things like Elastic Beanstalk or Heroku, where you really only care about your code anymore, and everything else that you need to do, you just automate on top of it. And I think that's a really powerful model for many teams, um, because you can get the best ops people to build those amazing services for you. Like they really, really understand on a very deep level how to make that work, how to automate that for many, many customers and for many, many teams. And you as a developer can work on top of that. You have your defined artifacts, how you get stuff into that infrastructure, and you can automate on top of that and think and always stay in your comfort zone, um, which is software. And so I think that's, that's what, what is for me DevOps, this separation, but clear responsibility on, on the developer side. Is Codeship modeled after the after looking at the continuous deployment styles of or the DevOps styles of any particular companies? Or maybe you could give me a little bit of an idea of how you guys got the idea for Codeship. Yeah, sure. Um, the main idea was basically that I was the person in in all of the the teams I worked before. I'm, I'm a process person, so I was always the guy setting up like development processes, introducing different build tools, or like automating that more. And and I was also typically the guy uh, managing Jenkins. And from managing <laughs> Jenkins instances in several teams, I just got away with the idea that this can really not be the end all of, of this. And even though like Jenkins and they did a wonderful job of introducing the concept of CI and really enabling it for many teams, many, many years. Um, but at some point it, it just showed its, its enterprise roots and, and, and the complexity of, of just managing that underlying infrastructure and especially managing it just age. The, yeah. It, it just aged and managing that infrastructure for like different teams like if you have in one company different teams that use the same kind of test infrastructure, that just becomes a huge headache because somebody will inevitably go in and update the Postgres version. And then like, because they use the latest Postgres and you use another version of Postgres and then just your tests fail and it's just miserable. And and, and that was really the move where GitHub and, and AWS took off. So that was in late 2010 or we're already taking off for a bit. And so then was we decided like, okay, that's, Something's missing there. Like everybody's working on GitHub, everybody's deploying to AWS, and then everybody runs their own test servers. Like that didn't make any sense. Um, so we we just basically built it our own. <laughs> so the, the typical hacker fashion, like it's not there yet. So let's just do something about it. And yeah, so that's where we started, and 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 that's also how the ideas um, and and working with many customers came along, and and how we more and more saw that. Um, it's not just about the test infrastructure, but it's really about making sure that people can release easily. Continuous delivery and continuous deployment generally got a lot more traction over those years. 
and and so that's that's how we got started there and that's how we always thought about okay how can we automate more how can we take more burdens away from the developers how can we make sure that they can be more focused on their code and their product instead of the other things that they need to take care of but don't really want to take care of because it's not really a productive way to spend their time and so that's Mm. that's the idea okay so let's start moving towards a conversation around that when a company wants to onboard with CodeShip for the first time, what does that company need to do? You just basically sign up uh, on our website. Um, you log in through either uh, GitHub or so you can sign up with your email, but then you connect your GitHub or Bitbucket account, uh, create a new project, and then you just get presented with a, basically a list of your repositories. You select the repository, and then you can start running your builds basically. And, and then it depends. So we have two different infrastructures. Um, the one that we've running, been running for quite a while where you can manage everything through the web UI and set up your build through the web UI. And we also have a new Docker-based system that we've been working on for a while. And there you just basically have configuration files like a Docker Compose file and a workflow um, file that you just put in your repo. We just read those and, and take it from there. But basically, yeah, you just connect your repository. We set up the hooks. And from there on, we start running the builds for you. So what kinds of configuration do I have to do as the developer? Um, so if we go with, with our, our new Docker-based system, you basically just tell us which containers to use and how they should be linked together. So you create a, a main container from a Docker file, and we have a lot of that in the documentation, of course, that says, okay, here is this container has Ruby installed or starts from this Ruby container and installs these other kind of tools and these dependencies. Then I have a Postgres and a Redis, and I link it to into this um, Ruby container so that my Ruby test process can actually talk to Postgres and Redis as well. And then you're basically all set there. So you've set up the build infrastructure, and which gives you a lot of control because you can really install anything. It's just a container. So whatever you install in that container is, is totally up to you. And then um, in the workflow file, it's just a YAML file basically where you define a graph. So you just tell us, use this container that we've just um, created and run this command inside of it. And that could just be any kind of test framework um, for your specific language and or an, a deployment script or whatever you want to run as part of the build. And then you can use obviously parallelization and lots of different ways how to build really, really complex graphs or you could say only run this build step on these branches or only on branches that match this regex. Um, but that's that's the main idea. You just put those two YAML files in there, um, defining your build environment and defining your build process. And, and then you're good to go. And we pick it up from there. Does CodeShip clone the entire database or do you just specify some kind of... Uh sample database or how, how does that work yeah typically sample data um so you have some kind of factory or something like that where where you create um and and populate the database obviously we have customers that connect into like long-running staging databases um because they want to have they want to run a, against a very specific data set or we even had customers or have customers that download like a gig of data um for their builds um, to populate it um, for specific branches or maybe on the master branch you want to run against a specific data set. So that's something that, that customers do. But I guess most people um, really use um, kind of like factories or any other kind of way to populate their database um, while or before running their tests just to keep the data set controlled and small and particular to each test. Um, so that's what we typically find people do. 
Codechip has a feature called Parallel CI, and you, you talked about this a little bit. It makes your tests run in parallel. I'd like to get an idea of what this feature does. Are you running all the tests on the same server, or are you spinning up separate servers for each test in order to increase parallelization? Yeah, so that depends on the, on the infrastructure that you're running on. In our um, existing infrastructure, um, we actually we have basically a build cluster, and we run LXC containers there, and then we just distribute the build. We, we split it up into various um, pipelines, and then we run it across the, the infrastructure, and it just gets picked up by whatever um, build server is just ready um, to pick it up, basically. Mm. And so that, that makes sure that it's, get, it's getting distributed across the whole infrastructure. In the new system, the Docker-based system, it runs on the same host. So the idea there is that we don't, because we give you a lot of control and a lot of power over the specific um, Docker containers um, that you're running, um, even we just let you talk to the Docker socket directly. Um, and that could introduce some security issues. So from the beginning, we decided, okay, um, we're not going to run this multi-tenant um, because if somebody is able to break out, if there's ever a Docker zero day and somebody is able to break out, we don't want anybody to obviously leak uh, production um, or production <laughs> access. That's kind of a no-go. No um, but on the other hand, we really want to give you our customers a really powerful way to run their builds. Um, so for us, the best way was to just give you a whole um, AWS instance and you run inside of that AWS instance. When you parallelize, you run in separate containers and isolated containers on that same host. Um, if somebody's ever able to break out of one of those containers, they are just on an AWS EC2 host. Um, and, and since we're not reusing containers for other customers, uh, reusing uh, instances for other customers, you can't really do anything about it there. Um, so that, that was really important in terms of the security. And, and you can then also select different instance sizes. So if you want to go with the smallest or a larger instance size, um, is, is totally up to you. Um, and, and that gives you more power to parallelize, basically. What kinds of speed up do people get when they parallelize their tests? Yeah, so we've, we've seen teams and like the largest teams um, go with like 20 or 30 or even way more pipelines. Um, so I think we, we have teams that definitely go from like an hour and a, an hour and a half builds down to like 10 minutes, 15 minutes or even lower than that. So I think that's definitely um, the kind of speed ups that, that, that we've seen. Um, in, and it depends on the specific languages, some languages where it's, it's a little easier to parallelize than, than in others. Um, but yeah, so a, a lot of speed um, that can be gained out of um, parallelization and, and, and generally, in, in, in our opinion, or in my opinion, I think the goal should really be for the build to finish in like two or three minutes because that's the time typically like if you develop something locally, you commit it, you push it into the repository. After two or three minutes, like that's the first time where you think about like, is this build already finished or is it still running? And mm -hmm. at that point, you want the build to be finished because you might have worked on something else. You've implemented the next commit or something like that. And then you want to get the feedback like, did everything work or was there something that failed? And if there's something, if there's something that failed, you want to go back, immediately fix it, push again, and then keep working. So that two, three minutes, five minutes maybe, but five minutes is, I think, already on the, the upper bounds of I consciously think about the build. And, right. and when I have to think about the build, and then that's just another loss of productivity. Like I, I don't even, oh, yeah. as a developer, I don't, I don't want to have to think about anything. I just want this kind of information to just flow in my direction. 
um, exactly at the time when I need it. And so I think that's that's the goal that that we want to give people the the power and the ability to do that. And I think that's um, the goal that we have for our our test suite, um, which we're sometimes ha- work. Sometimes it's working out. Sometimes it's not working out because it's it's really hard to make your test suite um, run fast if you have a lot of tests. Um, I think I think this this increase in speed in any type of uh, software engineering bottleneck is oftentimes overlooked it's it's it can be so useful uh you know i did a show recently about uh just some data science stuff and um you know the the guest was talking about spark and basically how spark didn't bring anything new to the table uh in terms of the the application types of applications that he was writing but the level of speed that it brought to the pre-existing operations that he was doing completely changed how he thought about his work, and and I think the same is true for getting uh, your you know your test infrastructure sped up or parallelized. It totally changes how you feel about the development process. I one hundred percent agree. I think that's that's yeah. very correct. Um, you just change how you build your product from everything from marketing, sales, product development. Everything just gets changed if you can release any single second that you want to. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, we've now that we've talked about how a company can get started with continuous deployment on CodeShip, for example, uh, let's talk about some of the companies that have been using CodeShip for a while to get an idea of the product offering and how it, how it improves companies. So one example that I've seen is Product Hunt, which is a site I've used before, and this is kind of like a news and information site that showcases lots of software and books and podcasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's built on Rails. Yep. And b- before CodeShip, they were using rake tasks to deploy. And they tested locally. And if they had a feature branch that they wanted to deploy, they had to test it locally before it was merged. How does a continuous delivery tool like CodeShip help with this type of situation? Yeah. I mean, even from just running the build, what I mentioned before with like the two or three minutes, just getting that feedback immediately if something works. If as a developer, you just work on a feature, you run the f- small tests or like the two or three tests that impact that feature. As soon as you've committed something, instead of having to run the whole suite locally and just getting a coffee or doing something else while your laptop is completely like taken out of with that, with that running all of the, the tests, Instead, you can instead just push it to off to Kochi or any other um, CI service that you might be using, and then keep working on the next thing, and and that's already a speed increase where you don't really have to think about that um, at all anymore. And then also because once you have this kind of as you mentioned the deployment tasks and you kind of run those manually and somebody in the teams run those runs those, you consciously don't push as hard and as fast all the time, and and that's definitely something that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the product hunt guys um, would agree on that you don't you, you lower the speed yourself because you kind of feel uncomfortable deploying by hand and then like once you know a deployment happens like everybody is kind of okay now this is happening like let's just watch that everything works fine and um, it's just an uneasy feeling that you have if you don't feel that is fully automated and like it's just happening. Um, without you having to think or interact with it at all. Mm-hmm. I think those kinds of things are really um, 
driving um, the adoption of, 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 of CI and, and CD in general and, and services so they don't have to, to manage it on their own. And, and, and yeah, and that's definitely um, true for, for the Product Hunt team who've been iterating very quickly and releasing stuff all the time. And, and yeah, we're, we're very happy um, to, to support them with that and make sure that they can, can bring all the best new products um, to, to all of us. <laughs> I, yeah, I like that site. So another case study I saw of a customer using CodeShip was an organization called Lending Crowd, which mm-hmm. is a peer-to-business crowd lending service. And uh, they were using Jenkins prior to CodeShip. How, how have they migrated away from Jenkins and how has the continuous deployment process changed? Yeah. So typically since um, the way the, the, the CI system works is, is basically just running shell commands as well. So that's something where you can just copy over your configuration in large parts um, very easily. And the, the process itself um, gets, gets, the onboarding process itself gets, gets really easy from there. And, and, and also from the deployment side, I think that um, if I remember their, their specific use case correctly, I think um, deploying in this kind of, um, for, for their particular, once you do like money transactions, financial transactions, and if that's a big part of your um, deployment story, you also want to be very careful and conscious when you deploy and at which point you deploy and, and and if you do it automatically all the time for every merge or only on specific occasions and want to have some more manual control um, over that. And and so I think if I remember correctly, like they have their whole deployment process fully automated, but then also have like this kind of manual step in between where you merge from one branch to another and that triggers the actual deployment pr- to production, but other steps like merging into a master branch, um, deploys into a staging environment where you can actually review and do a feature review and, and all that kind of stuff. So being able to have these kind of staged um, workflows, this kind of sta- staged process where the whole team, especially for some um, companies that, that can't just roll out whenever they want to. So we have customers that have contractual obligations that they do not release between 8 a.m., to I think 6 p.m. Eastern. That's a contractual obligation. And so they can't do anything there. So, but they, at the same time, they wanna make sure that their application works. They wanna deploy to a staging environment all the time. So they automated that, they automated the deployment to production. They just don't trigger it um, during the time where they can't, unless it's a, a specific um, bug release um, or something that they, that they need to push out. So these kinds of hmm. workflows, um, were I think really important um, for 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 those customers, and that you have this kind of flexibility. Where um, continuous delivery is really nice. Um, I think it's a really helpful and really productive workflow for many many teams, but it's not something for everybody, and especially not in terms of the timing. Some teams are really early with that. Sometimes uh, teams don't feel that their code coverage and their test coverage is at a point where they feel comfortable releasing all the time. And 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 then they add some some layers there that are still fully automated, but a little bit more under control. And, and what I what I when I talk to teams, what I tell teams people, uh, what, what I tell teams, um, the the where I think teams should be going is really like it's Friday night, and you're basically out of the office on your way <laughs> to meet with friends, and like you just merge this thing and put it into production because you have that trust that the system will capture any kind of problems and any kind of issues. I think 
getting to that level of comfortability um, is is really key um, because only then you can really, as you mentioned before, change your whole processes and change the way you think about building your products and, and building your software, which just, it, it doesn't allow you to do that if you don't feel comfortable at any point in time and, and anywhere um, to deploy. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the features that CodeShip is working on today? Yeah, so the, the big thing is definitely our uh, Docker-based system. So while so it's in, in production release and we already have customers on there and, and you can sign on um, to, to get a demo and get onboarded there. Um, we're putting some of the finishing touch, touches on some of the features there and really making sure that um, that part of that new infrastructure um, is, is there for all of our customers. And I think on top of that, the future of CodeShip is really in making sure that the information of a build gets delivered to more than just your development team. So we see CodeShip and we see generally continuous delivery and, and the process continuous delivery to be important, not just for the development team, not just for like the head of development, VP of engineering or something like that, but it's really important for product team. It's really important for marketing, for sales, for support, because if you're a support person, you get in a support request and something fails and you want that customer to get a good answer to get that resolved as quickly as possible. Now you talk to your engineering team, they fix it, they release it. Then two days later, you get a notification that, or somehow you know that this was released and then you can tell the customer. Now there was a two-day delay maybe that where you didn't tell the customer that this has already been happening, this is out there, this is fixed, and they, they ha- could have a much, much better experience with your service if you knew that that information, if you knew that the deployment happened way earlier. So doing things like that, where we think continuous delivery has a big technical challenge, and that's something that we're finishing now, basically, um, or like finishing the next iteration of that now. But it also has a big communication challenge because once you are able to uh, deploy and, and deliver at any point, there's more people in your company that are interested by that. And, and yeah, same goes for sales and, and, and marketing, of course. So making sure that this kind of information flows out of CodeShip and into the right people and the right places at the right time is really one of our next challenges um, to, to really bring continuous delivery to even more people in companies than, than just the development teams. Cool. Well, that, that seems like a great place to close off. Flo, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been a great conversation, um, and I'm happy to have CodeShip as a sponsor of the podcast. Um, you guys are great. Your product is super interesting, and uh, thanks again. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.